today on CityCast Madison. It's Thursday, so that means we're talking food, and I have a question for you. Could you walk out your front door, head to a local park, and bring back ingredients for a gourmet meal? Masson forager Andy Grisovich says not only is that possible, he did it last week. And even though farmers markets are just getting started, he says spring is one of the best times to find local food. Let's find out how he does it. It's Thursday, May 4th. I'm Dylan Brogan, and here's what Madison's talking about. Andy, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, of kind of an odd spring, but with foraging, I imagine you, there's still a lot of great things out there. So, so what have you been up to in terms of harvesting? It's always, except for maybe September, the best time of year is now. So, um, two days ago, I made a, an almost all wild lunch for over 20 people. You're kidding. We had, wow. uh, yeah, we had an enormous salad uh, with 26 species of plants in it. And you did that all this spring? That's already... Yeah, that was all harvested in one day. And then uh, with, with the group, uh, those 26 plants, plus some uh, wildflower vinegars that I'd made last year from uh, various plants and some maple syrup in the dressing, um, some hickory nut oil. And uh, yeah, and then there was simple stinging nettle soup with a stock made from a bunch of plants that are perfect right now uh, and some dried mushrooms. Um, wow. And then uh, some latkes or latkes, apparently they're both correct pronunciations, uh, made from wild parsnip with some wild onion and a few few sauces mostly made with stuff that's in season right now. So there's just a ton. It's like before anything shows up at the produce department that's local or anything shows up at the farmer's markets that's local, There, there's an abundance of like incredibly delicious incredibly nourishing greens out there. Well, the one that you just said that caught my ear was stinging nettle soup, you said? Oh, yeah. What, what does that taste like? Nettle is to die for. It's kind of oceanic, so it's got like almost a seaweed aspect to it. Um, mm. uh, it's rich, it's dark, like incredibly flavorful. So um, like salty? Is that what you mean by ocean? It's got a little bit of salty to it, but it's more like that kind of deep deep green that you associate with like an ocean plant or something like it would go well. I haven't done this yet, but uh, we will in the next couple of weeks uh, make uh, crab cakes and nettle cakes to go on top of each other. Wow. And I think it'll be a perfect pairing. This is all gourmet food. It's astonishing how good it is. Um, But nettles are like gourmet stuff. Well, that sounds like a good pro tip, though. Uh, I mean, they're called stinging nettles for a reason. Do you have to wear gloves? Uh, A lot of people do. I do it barehanded because it's faster. Um, And uh, you only get stung if you brush your fingers or the back of your hand against the stinging hairs. So, um, you know, you figure out where to put your hand so you don't do that and then just snap off tops of nettles. And uh, yeah, pretty easy to do with no sting. I don't mind the sting that much anyway, but it's nothing like a poison ivy rash or something really horrible of that kind. Uh, But yeah, you can use scissors, you can use gloves. And you must have to cook it in some way. You do have to cook it. Well, you could, uh, if you wanted to eat them raw, you could blend them um, or dry them. And basically any processing gets rid of the the stingers, dismantles them. So we actually put some raw in the salad, uh, just massaged them in the olive oil and or hickory nut oil, and that dismantled the sting pretty nicely. But generally, yeah, you cook them. You'll find in uh, a lot of books, they'll say, oh, drop into boiling water. That's a waste. Like you just wash them, put a lid on your pan, steam them, and that's enough to 
to render them harmless. Or in this case, they go into a soup stock and get blended briefly. Wow. You know, one of the foraging foods that I feel like is very coveted in around town are morels. Oh, yeah. Um, And that you pretty much have to forage for them. So uh, are those around yet? Uh, What other wild mushrooms are you on the prowl for? Well, right now, I think we're about a week out for uh, for much of anything. Um, I think with the warm weather we're going to get later this week, it's going to be I think it'll probably be the best or at least the least bad morel season in, in years this year because we have so much water in the ground. So, yeah, once the soil warms up to 50 degrees or so, I think they're going to be popping in all their spots. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I've stopped being obsessed with finding them over the last few years, even though they are about my favorite thing on the planet. Um, I just found myself wandering around desperately looking last year and be like, why am I stressing myself out? Let's just I know I'll eat some. Yeah. Well, what's this? What's the trick, though, for finding them? Uh, the trick is to not look everywhere. Um, okay. so, so there are there are tips and tricks like mm. they like dead elms, they like aspens, they like apples, look in old farm fields, sandy places near water. And those are all true. But I feel like really the way that I find them is just by keeping my eyes open and waddling around like a duck, uh, you know, low to the ground, pulling garlic mustard and not trying too hard to see the mushrooms. I feel like plants you can search for. And and in my experience, mushrooms have to show themselves to you. Hmm. So you just have to be kind of open and ready for them. Um, I never find much until I'm giving up and going back to the car. And that's always when I end up being two hours late to get home. So morels and then what will come up at the same time or come out of logs uh, are pheasant backs which are often thought of as the morel hunter's consolation prize, uh, also known as dryad saddle. They are undersung because they get very tough once they get bigger than like a, I don't know, a silver dollar or something like that. If anyone remembers the existence of silver dollars, even then they're great as a soup stock mushroom. But before that, they're fantastic. Sliced thin and fried until like golden brown. Uh, They have a distinct cucumber, watermelon rind aroma, and they're everywhere. They're very, very easy to find. So anytime you're out morel hunting, look for the pheasant back. And if you get them young, then you're in for a treat that's not a treat like a morel, but is, is pretty good. Well, just hearing about the 26 plants in that salad that uh, you just made for a group, um, I mean, that is very impressive. So how did your foraging knowledge start accruing? And, and yeah, and how do people get into this? Because it sounds like you, you, you need to become a little bit of an encyclopedia of plants and stuff. Yeah, this is, uh, this is about a decade of obsession, and um, which started just when I moved back to the Midwest from Southern California and wanted to reconnect to nature here in a different way. Started hunting mushrooms around here and wanting to expand my knowledge of those. And then checked out the first book by Sam Thayer, who's in Bruce, Wisconsin. And basically anybody in the country would tell you he's the best foraging writer and teacher out there. And started thumbing around in it and picked one plant, uh, which was serviceberry. Uh, and I was like, I'm mm. going to find some serviceberry. Found some near the, near the campus here. Uh, and on a beautiful summer day and a really stressful time in my life. And it was like so fulfilling to connect with this, this being, this plant that I just had like tears down my face. And, anyway, um, and then, you know, uh, yeah, I just learned one plant at a time over years, uh, took workshops and classes when I could, uh, not nearly as often as I'd like to. So having a mentor is great going out on walks with somebody who knows what they're doing. There's yeah. no substitute for that, but there are some really good books, some really good Facebook groups. And then also I had a kid. And so half the day while my partner was working, I would have him in a backpack on my back and we'd just take a walk. I'd look at a plant and be like, 
that looks like you could maybe eat it. Uh, I'll take a picture and go home and check it out. And I would look it up, identify it, figure out whether I could or not, and then go back to the spot and try it. And, you know, so many walks that those first couple of years as a parent that there was nothing else I could really do besides learn plants and learn yeah. Well, hey, uh, I I love that it does foraging does seem like hey people like to go on walks they like to bird uh, take care of their kiddos so this is a good thing to start learning about while you're doing other things like that right just being out in nature yeah and then you know the um, and it connects you so much more deeply to specific places in like in detail, you end up caring for these tiny spots that you wouldn't have even noticed before. And you end up weeding them or like managing for erosion or like, you know, Mm. I I feel like there's a, there's a sense of this potential destructiveness of foraging that a lot of people have. And I know basically no foragers for whom the opposite isn't the case. Sorry about that string of negatives, but um, it leads to greater land care and uh, a like deeper land care ethic, I think, and knowledge and consciousness of ecology uh, than it does to, you know, a take, take, take mentality. It kind of, I think of it as de-Europeanizing ourselves in a way. It's like the, the European attitude of this is here for us. We can take it all. Foraging leads to the opposite in my experience. Well, we, we're going to talk more about like kind of the ethics behind this foraging. But, you know, one thing that you hear a lot about that is needs to be pulled is garlic mustard. And you said you've mm-hmm. already been doing that. So um, is garlic mustard, that's an invasive species. I know it's very hard to get rid of. Um, is mm-hmm. that something you could eat though? So you could be cleaning up and then have a tasty meal afterwards. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I like garlic mustard as a food when it's like particularly spicy, which is in certain places right at the beginning of its stage. It's not my favorite. So I end up pulling a lot more than I eat. It is incredibly nutritious. I'll say as a side note, there's now evidence that there's like a relative of a flea beetle um, that's arrived in the Midwest that's actually finally feeding on garlic mustard. So it has a natural predator. And I'm seeing evidence of this a lot around. So that's cool. The one that I eat more uh, that also people pull that's a little bit less well known, but it's kind of like number two in parks and restoration areas uh, around here is Dame's Rocket. So if if you walk around parts of the Arboretum or basically almost any piece of woodland in Madison, you'll see uh, as soon as the snow melts, tons of these rosettes, rosette being like uh, an outward growing circle of leaves of bright green leaves that have been green under the snow for ages. And you'll just see tons of it. And that's all Dame's Rocket. It's in the mustard family. It was also introduced by Europeans. It's, and it's an uh, invasive too. And it's, it's an invasive. It doesn't do what garlic mustard does, which is to actually prevent the growth of the fungi that other plant roots depend on to live but it's it just makes a huge amount of itself and crowds out other plants. And you'll see it in the summer. It'll be a, in early midsummer. It'll be a sea of these beautiful little pink, purple, and white flowers, all Dame's Rocket. Uh, and and mud- what do you do with that? Do you just eat the petals or the, the oh, stems? The, or the, the leaves and the flower stalks and then the flower petals. They have like a very mildly spicy flavor, um, no bitterness, a little bit sweet. The greens I pretty much cook. You can eat them raw. But with garlic mustard, if you pull it out of the ground, you're going to get everything dirty. And I'm a spoiled forager. I want to pick everything clean. Like I want it to be like it comes off the produce shelf. Mm. Um, I just, I mean, I just, I eat this stuff every day. I don't want to bother like washing it 17 times anymore. So it's one reason I don't eat much garlic mustard because pulling it gets it dirty. Pulling Dame's Rocket, it's a huge sheaf of leaves. You just pull the root out, cut the root off, and you've got this, you know, a half gallon of clean greens in your hand. And you can cook that at home and cook enough to stock your freezer with it if you want wild greens in the winter uh, very easily. It's a nice a nice eating one. And uh, yeah, easier to get rid of, I think, probably too. 
Well, you mentioned you saw those at the the Arboretum. Now, good for the Arboretum people, but you know they can they can be a a little rule heavy, and I, I'm guessing they don't want you to just pick whatever there. So how how does he, how do you navigate that in terms of you know the Arboretum is one thing, but in local parks or any mm-hmm. other spot where you know it's okay to uh, forage. I mean, is what's the legality behind this? Right. Good question. Yeah. I don't forage, uh, in the Arboretum. Um, well, I'll, I'll say that I pull, uh, James rocket there, but they probably don't mind that is they, I don't know. I mean, they are really rule heavy. They might, they probably don't want anybody except people who are officially approved to even get rid of an invasive, um, for them. So, um, well, you're doing them a favor. So we'll, I I mean, I think so too. So, and and I do, and I appreciate the, the ethic, the, the ethical drive behind their rule drivenness. If I may think that the rule drivenness is a little bit over the top. Um, and again, for the reasons that I said before, that I think there's this idea that humans, if they touch nature, destroy it. And that's kind of behind that. To your question. Yeah. The, the city parks have no official policy on foraging. So you want to forage in the city parks, just, uh, just get to know them and figure out if anything's been sprayed over the last X number of years, whatever is the the number of years you feel comfortable interacting with the plant in a spot that's had some herbicide applied to it. For me, that's like five years. Um, hmm. I don't want to pick. I don't want to pick from any ground with herbicide on it. You know, within five years of the time that I've seen that happen. Okay, so that's um, another concern about foraging is how do you, how do you know when those pesticides have been applied and when they haven't been? You you don't until you get to know a spot or you. Or you know a spot well enough to know, like, for example, one of the county parks that I frequently forage at. I actually am not sure if I'm technically allowed to do it there, but I've done it in front of park rangers for years, numerous times. So some people will look the other way. Like that county park I know is like a relative, relatively neglected one uh, or has generally been, which means they're not trying to do a whole bunch of restoration work or get rid of too many invasives. And that means no spray in most parts of the park. But there are a couple spots that I know have been sprayed and I just don't gather anything from those places. And I know that because I've been there over and over and over again. Hmm. Neighborhoods, you know, if you know your neighborhood, uh, there will be little easements, there will be side of the bike path, there might be spots that they've sprayed for something. But if you if you're on the bike path all the time, you see the signs when they're posted, you're they're legally obligated to post signs for at least the first couple of days after an herbicide application. And, and then you just start to eventually start to get a sense of like, well, this is way, way off trail yeah. in a place in a place that's not being managed much. So there's no way that anybody has done anything here. Yeah, it's just knowledge and experience, really. Legality-wise, the county parks vary, and the state parks have pretty stringent rules about what you can take and what you can't. And they they allow for you know mushrooms, fruits, uh, invasive plants, and a couple of other things. Uh, so there's there's plenty in some of the state parks as well. But part of this too is like okay, like wild ramps. I know um, mm-hmm. those are a tasty treat, and but oh, yeah. they're easily over harvested too. So part of foraging is you know really being a good steward of the land, right? Yeah, for sure. And ramps are a nice example. So when I do my walks, my my initial address of uh, sustainability is uh, starts by pointing out that most of like those 26 species of plants we had in the salad, 24 of them you would consider weedy, meaning mm-hmm. like you could they can take a really heavy harvest. Um, they could probably take heavy repeated harvests in the same season, though I don't do that. You would have to try to eradicate them by uprooting them or treating them really roughly or by spraying them. Ramps are an exception, so are a number of other plants that I forage for. Ramps develop slowly, um, reproduce slowly, um, quicker than a lot of people think by bulb division under the ground and then slowly by seed. Um, 
On the other hand, there's a lot of ramp shaming that goes around. So um, Ooh, if you're on the what? Facebook... In ramp this shaming? What yeah, is that? So, well, if you're on the Facebook foraging groups, which are fantastic in general at this time of year, you'll see anytime anybody has dug up ramp bulbs, unless it's on their own private land, people will pretty much jump down their throats and say, no, just take one leaf from each plant. You're killing the plant population, etc." And that is ecologically ignorant. It's, it's actually the case that uh, it depends on the plant population. So I have, you know, maybe 15 clumps of ramps growing in my backyard, I don't eat them. Uh, or I might, you know, I let the kids nibble a leaf or something. On the other hand, I have a friend with private land where there's a football field of dense clusters of ramps. And, and if you just let them go and don't dig any out, they're going to choke themselves out and the population will dwindle. So you actually need to dig some bulbs out from the center of a dense clump and what you do is you take the biggest ones and take those home to eat and you take the smallest ones, you move them out to the edges of the cluster and help spread out the population and make some room for the ones in the spot that you dug to reproduce. It's the same with a plant called trout lily uh, that is a beautiful spring ephemeral. If you have a really, really dense, huge cluster of trout lilies, they actually need to be dug and then the same thing. Grizzly bears used to do this to a relative of that plant in the West when there were more grizzly bears. Um, they would just dig and dig and they would throw them around, sp spreading them out and thin them so that they could actually reproduce it efficiently. And, you know, we do this in gardens. We do this in, in our homes. Like we, we prune, we thin, like, you know, why would it be any different for wild plants? Well, we'll see how the foraging community receives this, Andy. I think you're going <laughs> out on a limb here, but uh, <laughs> um, it does seem like um, there's a good and a bad way to do a lot of this foraging is what I'm hearing. Is there any like particular spots that around Madison that you think are, w would be good to, to start learning this craft? Oh, I mean, spot-wise, just about anywhere. Um, and if you, and it depends. If you want to identify but not pick, then then go to the arboretum, go to the Lakeshore Nature Preserve, like go to the places where that are abundant and diverse, but you know where you're not actually supposed to harvest anything. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, like any patch of woods around here that isn't completely overtaken by garlic mustard and dames rocket and honeysuckle and buckthorn, all the you know the prime invasives that kind of choke everything else out. Like take a walk at Hoyt Park, you know, where I'm where I have a I have a side gig as conservation ranger. It's a city park. You can nibble things there. Uh, there's a lot of work done to restore stuff, so treat it gently. You know, I'm not, I don't want to advertise that people should go and do a mega harvest of anything there, but you, you could learn a lot of plants. You could taste a lot of things. You know, you eat a leaf of something once you've got it. Well, you've mentioned a lot of weeds in that. So there's lamb's quarters and dandelion and stuff. And is mm -hmm. it purslane or purslane? Purslane. 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 Uh -huh. I mean, mm -hmm. do those actually taste good? Do you have to oh, do man. anything to make them taste good? Uh, well, some of them, yeah. Uh, lamb's quarters, you don't have to do anything to make them taste good. Uh, I don't like to eat them raw. They're, uh, they do to your teeth what raw spinach does to your teeth, make them feel kind of chalky um, huh. sometimes. Uh, but they're basically spinach, a fantastic, delicate baby spinach, really mild. Uh, purslane is delicious, has like a lemony flavor, uh, like a, a really nice, like light crunch. And you can eat that raw, you can stir fry it, you can pickle it. Dandelion can be bitter. You can learn how to like find less bitter dandelion. and uh, But also, you know, don't be afraid to cook your greens. You just boil it for a little bit and then fry it. Or if you're uh, from Greece or the Middle East or Italy, you, uh, you just fry it in a pan and you drown it in exceptionally good olive oil with a little bit of garlic. And the there's much more to that flavor than that bitterness that we can associate with dandelions sometimes. So you lead foraging walks, and I think that'd be a great way for somebody to get into this. Um, so sure. you'll be leading this all day, this full day event, this Saturday at Lake Farm County Park. 
What do folks learn on these walks? The one this weekend is a combination of a foraging walk and a, a fire by friction workshop. So people will learn how to harvest oh, materials wow. to make a bow drill fire by friction kit. That'll be led uh, largely by my partner in organizing this, Alex Britzius, from this group Wild Harvest Nature Connection, which does fantastic work. Then we'll walk around and we'll meet a ton of plants. I bet we'll meet 45 plants. And uh, How are you and doing, plant? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Nice, nice to meet you. Shake your hand unless you're stinging metal. And, and maybe then just even clip then it and then boil it up. And, uh, right, exactly. Okay. And yeah, so we'll, we'll take a walk. Um, probably over the course of a couple of hours, we will cover at most a quarter of a mile and because there's there's so much to encounter and learn there um, and we'll talk about uh plant ecology we'll talk about flavors we'll talk about culinary uses we'll talk about how these things got there yeah what happens if you interact with them in particular ways tell as many yeah, plant stories no, as possible fun. Walks. yeah and then we'll make a we'll make a meal together you know and we'll have that people will be working on their fire fire making and other people will be helping helping cook yeah. and we'll have you know a three or four course wild food meal at the end of it Andy Grisovich, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you so much, Dylan. Andy Grisovich is a forager and founder of the What Got Gathered food business. You can find him with his wildcrafted foods at the Westside Community Farmers Market on Saturdays and the Monona Farmers Market on Sundays. He'll also be at the Eastside Farmers Market beginning in June. And for details on his wild food walks, we'll throw a link to his site in our show notes. And here's what else Madison's talking about. Since we'll all be out and about looking for weeds to make into salads, why not check out the annual Spring Fest at the Warner Park Community Recreation Center? That's happening on the north side this Saturday, May 6th. 80 vendors from around the Midwest will be selling arts and crafts. And before that, it's gallery night this Friday, May 5th. Dozens of venues around Madison are opening their doors from 5 to 9 p.m. to show off the work of local artists. We'll include a link in our show notes so you can see what's happening near you, or it's an opportunity to check out a part of town you don't normally frequent. It's totally free, but one night only. The weather on Friday looks just about perfect. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Dylan Brogan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a ramp shamer about us? Maybe they can leak it. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. May the 4th be with you. See you later. What's Edward Snowden's favorite vegetable? A leek. Womp, 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 womp.